Welcome to Careers and Mental Health Conversations. This is the podcast where we discuss career counselling, career guidance, mental health awareness and mental health training in the workplace. With your hosts, Patrick, Sally, Tina and Amy. So welcome to Careers and Mental Health Conversations. I'm your host today, Tina Winchester, and I'm joined by Dr. Claire Kelly from Mental Health First Aid Australia. Um, Dr. Claire Kelly uh, actually leads research and curriculum at MHFA, and she's been involved with MHFA since 2003, when she first became an instructor whilst completing her doctorate. Since 2005, Claire's worked on the MHFA guidelines, which are used to inform courses and is also an author on the manuals and handbooks, which are used in MHFA. Um, And Claire's PhD thesis was written on the mental health literacy of Australian adolescents. So I'm overjoyed to welcome Claire on our podcast today. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks, Claire. 16 years with Mental Health First Aid. That's really (laughs) impressive. Yes, and actually, you know, in a way, you could say even a little bit longer than that because I remember the dim, dark days when our so-called manual was actually just photocopied pages and I used to help Betty print them off before we ran our tiny courses on um, in the evenings at the Centre for Mental Health Research at the ANU. Wow. So for those people that don't know... Um, much detail about how Mental Health First Aid was established. Could you give our listeners a bit of an overview of that for those that haven't done the course with us yet that that get the overview when they do the course? But how? uh, tell us about how Mental Health First Aid came about. Oh, I'd love to. So once upon a time, (laughs) Betty and Tony, who are the the matriarch and the patriarch of of Mental Health First Aid, uh, were out walking their lovely dog, King, and Betty at the time, although she's a woman who has worn many, many hats in her life, at that point in time, her main work was running first aid courses for the Red Cross and diabetes education as well. So she and Tony were out walking and um, Betty was commenting that although lots and lots and lots of people get a first aid certificate, most people won't ever use any of those skills. And that's not to say that we shouldn't have those skills because the point is to have as many people as possible so that when something does go wrong, you've got the help right there. But she did make the point that if there was a mental health component in first aid courses, everyone statistically would have the opportunity to use those skills. And from there, they came up with the idea of mental health first aid, which at the time was imagined to be a tiny little thing that would happen probably a couple of times a year in Canberra if there was enough interest, which is quite hilarious now given that we're on track to hit 4 million people trained worldwide by the end of this year and even in Australia we're over 750,000 people trained. Yeah, that's amazing. So, yeah, so we, were, we started out at the ANU and in 2005, Uh, what was the team at the time, which was just sort of five of us, moved to Melbourne as a group uh, and it gave us a chance to sort of grow, you know, bigger population here in Melbourne. Um, Although I like to think that they just wanted me to have the opportunity to live near more cafes. (laughs) Good coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. And... uh, yeah, so then, and then we became an independent not-for-profit uh, in 2012. So we've had quite a journey. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, what was it that led you to become involved? Did you know Betty? No, actually, this is, uh, you know, it's one of those things. I, I think I have been incredibly fortunate. So I finished up my honours in sociology, which obviously nothing to do with mental health there. And I was looking for literally my very first sort of entry-level job and uh, applied for a job as a research assistant at the Centre for Mental Health Research uh, with no anticipation that I could get it, especially against, you know, psychology graduates. And and I got it. And within oh, really only a handful of months, there's some extraordinary women who worked in that place and, and they were saying, Claire, do your PhD, just do it, start it next year, just get it out out of the way so that you can get on with, you know, doing amazing things. So, uh, which I absolutely did. But right from the, the beginning of being a research assistant at the centre, I one of the first things that I did was join one of Betty's courses 
and I I don't even know at what point it was but I, I suppose it was probably towards the the end of that very first session when I just went this is it this is what I'm supposed to do I just felt like I'd, I'd stumbled into home and I knew right away the impact that it could have on people's families and, mm-hmm. and people's lives and opening up conversations that no one wanted to have back then. And so I was just incredibly, incredibly blessed to have been offered um, a scholarship to become one of the first instructors in 2003 and I just wow. never looked back. I swear I'm going to retire out of this place. They're going to have to drag me out. <laughs> That's so fabulous. Can you remember delivering your first course? Oh, yes. Yes, I do. And, oh, gosh, back in those days we had overhead transparencies, which is <laughs> hilariously quaint now. And the worst thing that could ever happen to you was dropping them because then they were out of order and your entire life was over. But uh, no, some of those early days, it was really interesting because compared to now where the vast majority of courses get run in workplaces, I was doing a huge amount of community training. Yeah. And it meant that you had a far greater range of knowledge in any one group. Mm. I did a lot of training through um, a community training organisation out of Calvary Hospital in Canberra. And you would have everyone from, you know, people who were likely to encounter people with mental health problems uh, because of the nature of their own work, whether that's, you know, working in a GP's office or uh, working in some of the hostels around the place or uh, employment services as well. And then people who just said, well, I just, I've never met anyone with a mental health problem. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Oh, isn't that interesting? Yes. And then, of course, you know, once they learned a little bit, they're thinking, oh, my gosh, there are people in my life I have just misjudged. And you could just see this aha moment, this light bulb moment where people went, this is really important. So, yeah, those those early days were, were a lot of fun, but they were very... They were very challenging too. I'll never forget in one course that I ran just at the um, at an ed- adult education service in Canberra. I can't even remember what it was called now. Uh, the I said at the beginning, you know, what, what sorts of things are you, you know, hoping that we'll cover in the course? And uh, one of them said, well, we'll be looking at epilepsy. Oh. <laughs> and I thought this is a base level of knowledge that is way lower than I would even anticipate in the average community group you have to make sure that everybody in the the room is going to walk away with the skills that they need and being adaptable Mm. is so incredibly important. But, of course, as a community, we've come a long way in terms of our mental health literacy since. Yeah, we have. Um, What do you think, Claire, is there any one thing that you think contributes to the success of Mental Health First Aid globally? But it, it, what is it about, because it's such a simple, fabulous concept, it's so easy to interpret and understand, um, what, but what one thing do you think it is, if there is just one thing, that, that contributes to the global success of the course? Look, I'm going to stretch that a bit and say two things. Yeah. Uh, one of them, in terms of the way that people respond to the course, I think what it does is show you that you actually have everything that you need already to have a conversation with someone. You just need a little bit of confidence and a bit of a sense of, you know, that you're very unlikely to say anything wrong, but let's focus on making sure that you're saying things that are perhaps more effective. Yeah. Uh, With a focus always on just making sure that the person knows that you care about them and that you genuinely want to help. So, I think that's part of it is that simplicity and because we couch that in uh, very real-world ways and because we're focusing on skills instead of just teaching people facts. Uh, and in terms of the, the, global, out, the, the global reach, mm. really I think it's the fact that right from day dot, Betty and Tony were determined that the course was going to have a really solid evidence base. Mm. They... You know, we, we all have strong science brains and it means that if something doesn't work, you're not going to keep doing it. You know, you, you find something else that is going to work. But right from the very beginning when it was just a sort of a pre-post-test um, and three-month follow-up in those very, very early days, 
all the way through to some of the, you know, complex randomised controlled trials that have been run. It means that there is a not only an evidence base for the course itself, but we've got the evidence base for uh, the way that we inform the curriculum using the, the guidelines that we developed through the Delphi method. And I think that that's what makes us stand out. This is not a course that was developed by committee. Yeah. This is not anybody's opinions. This is not couched in some sort of psychological language that makes it inaccessible to someone who might come along. I always mm. say to people that I do a lot of instructor training as well. And I always say to people that there is going to be somebody in your group who hasn't been in a classroom since he was 16 years old perhaps and hated every second of school and is really uncomfortable about the thought of talking about mental health, but he's got a teenage daughter at home who he can't communicate with and he's really worried about her. And whatever level of discomfort he's bringing with him, you have to make that okay and you've got to make sure that he walks out knowing that he can apply the skills as soon as he gets home. So the pitch was always incredibly important. You know, this is not a course for people who are mental health professionals. It's no. not a course for psychologists. It's a course for and taxi drivers yeah. and hairdressers and people in workplaces. And, mm. you know, that, that's what makes it so successful. It uses language that everyone can use. Yeah, I agree. Can you talk, to a, can you talk a little bit about um, the evaluations of the outcomes, so the benefits of um, implementing mental health first aid? Either, I mean, obviously the, our focus here at the Career Development Centre is on workplaces, but we do public courses as well, which brings us into, into contact with you know, people across the community. What kind of um, outcomes um, can you share with us in terms of how mental health first aid impacts uh, workplaces as well as communities? Uh, I could probably speak a little bit more strongly to communities because yeah. while we the, the research that we've done has virtually all focused on uh, individual outcomes, even though most of that most of the research has actually been conducted in workplaces in one way or another. We haven't necessarily measured the impact on the workplace overall, yeah. and honestly, that is some work that we would absolutely love to do. But you I need the workplaces that'll be. That they need to collect the data for you to inform you in terms of things like absenteeism, um, that kind of thing. Either. That's the sort of thing that we would like to, yeah. So we tend to get fairly informal reports about that and and that's great. I mean, it's always wonderful to hear that they're having the results that they want, but it would be nice to have that a bit more formally. Mm. But in terms of the outcomes that we get, I mean, the big things are improved knowledge, improved confidence, improved ability to recognise a mental illness, people are more likely to say that they have actually uh, assisted someone who they know after the course and the six months after the course compared to the six months before, even if they don't necessarily think that they have identified more people in their world who Mm. might have a mental health problem. One of the things that's really interesting is uh, our impact on stigma. Mm -hmm. Uh, Stigma is not necessarily something that we directly address in mental health first aid Mm. courses and there's a very good reason for that across all sorts of public health research in fact intervention research (laughs) of all sorts using humans is when you say stop thinking this or stop doing (laughs) yeah right already thinking (laughs) exactly but if you give people and you know i mean we've had some classic failures over the years with um, health promotion in that way anything that makes people feel bad. I mean, all those terrible Grim Reaper ads in the the early days of the HIV um, problem here in Australia, it it didn't work. It doesn't do anything. What you need is to treat people like adults, give them the information that they need to make their own decision and the space to make that decision. So even though we don't actually directly address stigma, we see improvements in stigmatising attitudes which are often better than anti-stigma programs that have had significant research not that they not that all of them do there's certainly a lot out there that just sort of happens but we do get these outstanding outcomes um improved intentions to offer help uh good uh, recall of the action plan which is really important because it does give you a scaffold against which to offer that help uh willingness to uh talk about suicide that's Mm. a that's an important one 
And we know that uh, having a conversation with a person who is having thoughts of suicide is you know, one of the most you know, life-affirming things that you could possibly do and the impact that that has on the suicidal person is enormous. Yeah, so we, we get outcomes, really good outcomes across a range of different measures. So when it comes to workplace mental health, you know, we talk about this day in and day out here at um, Career Development Centre and Mentally Well Workplaces, and we work with a, a range of different businesses. And then now and again, and, and often, you know, when people engage the services here um, to, to have mental health first aiders trained in their workplace, um, they're already engaged and switched on in terms of the importance of addressing um, mental health and well-being. Yeah. There, are, there has been um, some kind of pushback from some businesses in terms of, um, well, we've had some funny old responses. Oh, <laughs> you know, things like, oh, if it's too negative, like we don't want to, to it's just too negative. Um, or and I've talked about this before on podcasts that the one that, that floored me was we don't want to open that can of worms um, or even, you know, well, it's going to give people the opportunity to play the stress card. So what, in terms of the, the positivity and negativity of um, uh, mental health first aid in workplaces, if we look at the negative side, first of all, or the negative um, response from some businesses, first of all, do you think that comes from fear or ignorance or just being a bastard? I mean, what? Because <laughs> 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 my, oh, I'm yeah. on the third one. I'm on the. I am on the. Come on, you know, you can't. We can't rule workplaces anymore. You know, it doesn't. It, it, that's not. You're not going to get the best out of people. But you know, and I, but then when I think deeper, I think it has to be something to do with fear or, or, or ignorance. But what do you think? Look, I think. That- I think it probably depends a little bit on the workplace. I think fear is a big one because there's, particularly I think when people do have some awareness that their culture in the workplace is not conducive to mental health and they're afraid that once they start having that conversation, they're actually going to be obliged to do something about culture. Yeah, they'll be exposed. Which is absolutely huge. Uh, I think that there is definitely um, a bit of, well, that's that's just not something that's, relevant for this workplace. I mean, literally, we've heard that particularly um, <laughs> particularly some of our most vulnerable workplaces, you know, we talk to, you know, emergency services and you know, police, defence, oh, that's just not really a problem for us. Like, well, actually, it really super is mm. and it's time that you sort of acknowledge that and address it. Uh, but I also think that there are genuinely, you know, far too many people in positions of, serious authority in workplaces who are just like if you can't suck it up just not particularly interested in having you here anymore Mm. and it's a ridiculous stance to take particularly you know I think that it's there's a bit of an arrogance there about well it couldn't possibly happen to me and actually it could happen to literally anybody Uh, but I'm also very aware that nobody has nobody develops an attitude like that in a vacuum Mm. they've learned it from somewhere else and whether that's Parents, I mean, for example, you know, I think about a, a someone I had uh, quite a bit of contact with a handful of years ago who was talking about uh, the, the difficulty that they were having in accepting that this was something that they sort of needed to do in their workplace and the, the feeling that you should really just, when you come to work, you should leave all of that at the door. No, that's just not, you know. And then acknowledging as she went along after she had done a course for the first time and, and having really strong pushback against some of it, realising that it was very much because her mother had been really severely depressed when she was young and her father's attitude was, suck it up. Yeah. It's not even like you have real work to do. You're just at home. You just have to cook and raise the kids as if that's not work. Mm. So we, we do develop these attitudes in response to things that we hear, things that we see. And I think that uh, getting angry or, or sort of pushing back against that is not nearly as effective as saying, oh, you know, that's, a, that's an interesting perspective to take. But you actually need to realise that, you know, whether you want to address mental health or not, you are losing employee days mm. to absenteeism, to presenteeism. You are probably losing staff mm. at times because 
rather than acknowledge that they might need some time out because of their mental health, they're just resigning. So mm. I don't think that they'll be able, they'll be allowed to come back after something like this. And really just, I mean, I think that for the majority of people, the humanitarian argument works. We know that we don't want people to be suffering. We know that we want to make improvements, but we can make the economic argument when we need to. Mm. And sadly, I think that that's what does get through to some of those places. Yeah, I agree. And um, and there is such strong, um, credible information out there about the economic cost of not addressing. Yeah. I mean, some you know, the PwC um, report, the, the Alliance report as well. I mean, there's 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 heaps of credible information out there um, that addresses the cost of not. Uh, supporting people's mental health in workplaces it's uh, mm-hmm. and I'm sure I, I heard something recently I tell you what it was Claire I was listening to I'm a bit of a podcast fiend I was listening to oh are you yeah Patrick McGorry um <laughs> on Pucker Up's podcast with Wayne Swass and he was saying that actually the cost to the economy now is up to about 12 billion I've no doubt that that's true so the I mean, PwC the, report said ten point nine, and 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 that was a few years ago, and so it's up more like twelve billion. Well, yeah, and look, I, I think that it's always been a little bit conservative anyway, yeah. um, because you know that probably doesn't take into consideration uh, maybe things that are a little bit harder to quantify, I guess, but uh, things like you know the the loss of opportunities for development like actual innovation and, and things like that that we're robbed of that we don't even know about yet yeah 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 so it's so important and it and it, it it's something that we can't i mean are we going to knock down as many doors as we possibly can to um to do this to you know get the the information out there to people so let's look at the um so that that that's the negativity but um we've come into contact with some awesome workplaces like outstanding, yeah. <laughs> outstanding goosebumps goosebumps oh. like in terms of when you know we you can tell the difference between the workplaces that say we care and the workplaces that really do care um yes. so what about the standouts for you in terms of workplaces that have um uh, embraced mental health first aid and uh, and kind of come out gold stars oh gosh you know i'm going to be careful and, and try and not to name names, much as I would love to do that and give them the props they deserve. Uh, probably a couple that come to mind are some Australian-based multinationals where, you know, I, I bet you'll agree with me, Tina, sometimes it takes a champion in the workplace who just says, no, we're, we are going to address this, you know, not just everyone saying, yeah, we should, we should, we should, but actually saying, no, we are and we're going to, and here's an idea of how to start. But there's some places that have... You know, they started out running a couple of first, mental health first aid courses, often for management types who really don't have time to apply the skills and then thought, hang on, no, this has got to be on the floor. This has got to be, you know, people who have the time to talk to each other um, and people who, you know, are, are likely to notice that mm. a workmate might not be travelling so well. And then they say, well, this is great, but what else can we do? You know, and they start to bring in things like wellbeing programs and, um one workplace that I have had sort of regular contact with for, oh, my gosh, it must be almost a decade, I think, um, where they have daily yoga now as well. You know, it's literally every day. It's not very long. It's about sort of 15 minutes. Um, but it just refreshes people. And you do more work in the late afternoon having had that pick-me-up. Yeah, it's not a loss of fifteen minutes. No, it's it? a gain of the afternoon. Um, I think that there's there's also been some where you know the, the staff, you know, at a more personal level, have actually really sort of stood up and said that this is really important to us personally. Uh, where, for example, um, uh, one of those same workplaces, their annual Christmas party involves you know some fundraising activities. And they have donated that those funds to us for the production of resources in some of our programs where, you know, perhaps we don't quite have the same um, level of uh, income, which, you know, is, is amazing. And it's really nice to be able to say, hey, you know, this is not just the workplace. This is the individuals. They, they raised these funds themselves and chose us. I mean, I, to me, that's an incredible honour. Uh, 
But yeah, I mean, I think that there's more and more of them all the time. And, you know, some of them are so modest about what they're doing, you know, and I'll, uh, there's a, just recently I spoke to, uh, it's actually a Australia-wide chain of pharmacies and they have a, a major education um, summit every year and at least one person from every single one of those pharmacies is present for it. And uh, this year they asked me to come and speak to lived experience. So I told them a bit about some of the individual experiences I'd had over the years uh, in my mental health journey where I have had really significant support from pharmacists. Mm. And you can see them really saying, yeah, we need more of a role in mental health. We see people more frequently than their doctors do you know, and they're recognising that they can actually have a great impact. And even, you know, sometimes it's just such small things. It's saying hello, using a person's name, helping them to feel connected when they do come in, which sadly for a lot of people with mental health problems, disconnection is just part of the journey. And, you know, everything that you can do to feel a little bit more connected is, is going to be a, a terrific thing. But I think one of the things that they've all got in common is that they have recognised early on that they reap the benefits Mm. uh, in terms of organisational culture, in terms of engagement. Uh, We hear it's it's often a little bit harder to measure, but we have heard informally that um, things like absenteeism and presenteeism do appear to be down, that they are uh, receiving less stress claims, Mm -hmm. which is is terrific. And it would actually be really, I really would cherish the opportunity to, to look systematically at some yeah. of these large workplaces yeah. to sort of see, you know, what sort of impact it could have over a couple of years financially. So I think mm. that would be amazing. Yeah, but, I find that yeah, fascinating they, as well. And don't you love the way people say, you know, look, I'm here because it's my workplace, but I'm going home to my family and I live in a community and I have extended family and it's improving their home lives as well. Yeah. And that, of course, that has a knock-on effect for work as well because you know that when you're happy at home, when your life is working, it's just so much easier to focus in the office. Yeah, definitely. Um, So you touched briefly there on your own journey. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I know that you have had your own experiences with, um, with depression. Is that right? Yeah, with depression and anxiety right from the time that I was a, a young teenager. Yeah. Although, of course, at the time there was nothing wrong with me. It was the entire world that yeah. sucked. Yeah. I've got uh, a teenager at home as well. <laughs> one, and one that's gone through it and come out the other side. So it's a hard oh, time, isn't it? It is. It's, it's really hard. And I think, you know, oh, gosh, it just makes me think of the number, I don't even know how many hundreds of people have said over the years, I wish that this was around when I was in high school mm. or when my kids were or, you know, even when my parents were perhaps. Um, so, yeah, depression and anxiety from quite a young age and then um, I began injuring myself as a coping strategy in adolescence as well. Uh, and again, nothing wrong with me with the rest of the world. And of yeah. course, I was the first person in the history of anything to have done that because <laughs> way too crazy for anyone else to have come up with. Uh, Can I ask you a question? Not something that we knew <laughs> very much about. Back that that's interesting, though. Can I ask you a question about that? Are you aware of? Um, is was it, it was it less open when you were a teenager that that non suicide non suicidal self injury was a thing? Was it oh, less yeah. open then than than now? Because oh, now it I is, won't even say less open. I genuinely thought that I was the only person who had ever done it, and it wasn't until I was at university actually that um, uh, and it had been a while since I'd injured at that stage um, that one of my you know one of my classmates just happened to notice that she had some very nasty scratches on her arm and after a bit of tap dancing around the issue one day, you know, we sort of asked each other, so, so do you sometimes? Yeah, do you sometimes? Yeah, and that was it, you know. And before that I didn't, it hadn't occurred to me that anybody else might even do this. Mm. So, no, nobody was talking about it back then, yeah. in the 90s, um, except in very specific, you know, inpatient settings mm. usually, in relation to borderline personality disorder. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so we've come a really long way in terms of talking about it now. 
yeah, yeah. <clears throat> which is which is good. But uh, yeah, and I think that what part of the reason that I fell in love with this program when I did was that I was beginning to sort of see. You know, I had just sort of gone through the stage of going, oh, so therapy works. <laughs> <laughs> You know, literally going to uh, therapy to uh, placate a couple of people and then going, oh, this stuff works. And really sort of realising that things could have been so much better so much sooner yeah. if there had been anyone around who could have had that conversation. And it's not their fault. I mean, no. the thing is you just don't know what you don't know. And I love that every day I have the opportunity con- to contribute to people knowing how to have the conversation. So um, you, engage, you engage with services and therapy and uh, was there anything that was really unhelpful for you at that time? Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> there's definitely, I have to say that uh, there have been times in uh, emergency settings where self-injury has been, uh, the reaction is, not exactly a useful one. I think that a lot of people forget that self-injury is a symptom mm. you know, rather than, you know, something that's just there to ruin your night. <laughs> uh, so there's definitely that sort of thing. I think there have been a couple of times where someone tried to slap a diagnosis on me after, you know, a five-minute conversation. I'm just saying, sorry, you're never going to see me again because this is not this has not been a conversation. You haven't even made eye contact with me. Right. And certainly... You know, I've, uh, I think something that is really easy for, for people to do where there are sort of external behaviours that have been, that are people using to cope with symptoms of depression and anxiety, such as self-injury, such as use of alcohol or other drugs, that there's this very, oh, what have you done to yourself? Oh, haven't you been a bit silly? That sort of thing that is just incredibly trivialising. When someone says, well, seems like, seems to me that, things suck right now do you want to talk about it that has been amazing Mm. so yeah I'd say that um and I think as well you know the every time someone says oh you should try homeopathy or you should go to hold this (laughs) yeah hold yeah literally you know it's just like this is not helpful and, and it's funny because I, I and I say that kind of flippantly, but I do when I'm um, training mental health first aid, I do jokingly refer to that. It, it just that ta- hold this crystal, lay on this beanbag. Like we, you can't, you, you, you know, you, we can't holding a crystal is not going to make a, a, a one bit of difference. Wherever you get your comfort from is fine, but you can't expect these things to to just vanish because you're, you're holding a crystal, laying on a beanbag. It's just not going to happen. If you're holding a crystal and lying on a beanbag and doing therapy and <laughs> getting some exactly. exercise, but it just can't be the substitute. Yeah. You know? Or when people say, oh, my God, are you on antidepressants? You know, those are so bad for you. They don't do anything. They mask the symptoms. They change your personality. It's like, well, you know what changes your personality? Depression. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Can I ask you this then? Um, what do you think or what what how do you view the importance of individual accountability for our own mental health? Um, Look, that's a pretty complicated question. And I think that it's not necessarily a very fair one when we consider that, um, you know, mental illness is definitely somewhat out of our control. Mm -hmm. It happens. I mean, the best prevention programs where we see some good outcomes on, you know, reducing, uh, current symptoms of depression and anxiety where they're subsyndromal still don't necessarily prevent mm. the mental illness because so many of the risk factors are things that are immutable. Um, there's genetics, there is experiences of trauma, which we would all like to avoid, but mm. they just happen, sadly. Um, and I think that particularly when someone is in the early stages of recovering, mm. asking them to do a whole lot for themselves is, is pretty unkind you wouldn't do it if someone had a broken leg or a hip replacement but at the same time I think that it is not just um, personal responsibility but also incredibly empowering to be able to say that there are aspects of this journey that I am taking on for myself Mm. rather than just saying oh but I can't help it because you know I have a mental illness I think that 
actually taking some power back is an incredibly important part of that recovery journey. And even things like, you know, people say, but I'm too exhausted to go for a walk. Okay, that's okay. So initially it might be literally getting out of bed, having a shower. Mm -hmm. If that's been hard to do, that's an incredible accomplishment. And maybe in two months it's going to be a walk. Yeah. Let it take time but be working on it because yeah. that, you know, the empowerment is just as important as the actual action. And I, I like your response there, Claire, because I guess what that, that does as well is um, the way that you answered that is it reinforces the importance of everybody around us having the, the right kind of knowledge and, um, and mental health literacy to be able to notice when things might not be traveling so well. We might not be able to tell ourselves, but, but people around us can, um, can notice it too. And the only way we can do that that's is if we've so got the knowledge. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's, that's one of the reasons why it is so important to be able to have open and honest relationships with the people who are closest to mm. you. Um, look, I, my, you know, I, my mental health is, is pretty good these days, but I definitely have periods that are, are really tough. Mm. My best friend literally sent me a text a while back that said, Yo, unsubtle welfare check. Are you okay? <laughs> and just because he'd sort of sensed that it had been a little bit longer than usual since we'd made contact, and it means a lot. It's really it's just someone saying, "Hey, I care enough to know what your early warning signs are." Yeah. And often it's a bit of a, a wake up for me as well that, oh, okay, I'm isolating myself a bit. Mm. Um, how much exercise am I getting? Do I need to push that up a little bit? Do I need to go and maybe have a session or two with a psych to mm. just sort of tune up some of the the thinking that can tend to get a little bit more negative over time without you really noticing it? Yeah, that's so important. We um. Uh, we ran a seminar a little while ago around mentally well workplaces and we had one of the guest speakers um, talking about, he was from a a large um, telecoms company and he was talking about how they encourage their their staff to use their EAP sessions, whether they need to or not. And and I think they were offering four sessions a year and he said, you you need to use it like a check-in. And I just loved that, that the ease of the way that he suggested that. If you've got four sessions a year and you're finding that you've got to July and you haven't used any, use one of your sessions just to check in, just to get that different perspective, just to just to run a few things by. I mean, it was just, you know, we, we should be promoting that, you know, alongside anything to do with our physical health in workplaces. I and love that attitude. Isn't oh, it great? It's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, that is exactly the sort of workplace where, you know, we might have heard only a few years ago, oh, that's just not relevant for us. Yeah, yeah. But you see, people, it's relevant. <laughs> and if you if you got those champions, like you say, that are in workplaces that are kind of, I, I, in my mind, when I, I, I see these people that we've come into contact with that are just like that, um, you know, like um, James Hill from Energy Queensland, uh, he did a podcast with us, um, it must be last year now, and James came along and presented at our seminar as well. And, um, you know, people like James, I, I when I close my eyes and I imagine them in the workplace, I, I feel like they're burrowing. <laughs> And I know that's really funny, but I feel like they're burrowing around these workplaces and then they're popping up and sharing stuff and then they're burrowing around again and popping it up and, and, and it kind of infiltrates and that's what we need. You know, sometimes it just takes one. That's how the landscape changes, isn't it? Brilliant. It's just, it's yeah. just remarkable. I think it's amazing as well when you've got somebody who has that sort of passion and and um, and charisma in the workplace that just casually talks about it and it's just there all the time. It's yeah. not like you have to, you know, find a, a quiet corner and whisper yeah. about mental health. Yeah. It's just it's perfectly fine to talk about it, no different to, you know, got a cold coming on. You know, yeah, really yeah. Good. Really a bit low right now. And, and in fact, more and more workplaces um, that have a policy like the one we have at Mental Health First Aid, that rather than sick leave, we have personal leave. You don't need to have certificates for it. Yeah, right. You use it as you need it, you know, whether it is about needing a mental health day for yourself, whether it is about being unwell, looking after kids, anything like that. Yeah. You, know, you Because we're adults, we can handle these things ourselves. We know That's what we need. I love that. I do. Um 
recently um you were on channel seven news talking about youth mental health first aid and and, and that's that's something that we maybe we can cover off um in uh, in a, in another podcast to specifically look at, at different areas um but why do you think mental health first aid has been tr- so translatable to other countries so mental health first aid england we had simon blake on um recently and then we've got lady gaga picking up the teen mental mm-hmm. health first aid which is awesome um <laughs> in the states it, it's so transferable i've got two questions i think around that claire um the first is how much do they change the content in other countries and then i guess the second part is the question around why it's transferable Okay, well, in terms of how much gets changed, generally not very much. The skills themselves are based on uh, the guidelines that we develop using the Delphi method, which is a consensus method. Uh, So, and those skills, you know, they're interpersonal. They're about how do we have this conversation rather than, than anything else. So, where there are changes, it's often in relation to something to do with the health system. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in parts of Europe, cognitive behaviour therapy is, you know, pretty unusual to come mm-hmm. across and there's a lot of psychodynamic psychotherapy generally done by psychiatrists. Mm-hmm. And here in Australia, you know, most for the most part, psychiatrists don't do a whole lot of talking therapy. They're mm-hmm. really medication specialists. So health system changes, certainly. Um, and then... Oh gosh, when I think about uh, some of the work that they do in America, because so many people have absolutely no access to yeah. uh, mental health care that is subsidised in any way. You know, a lot of people who don't have health insurance or who have health insurance that is far too basic to cover anything like therapy. It means that they actually have quite a, a growing and really exciting uh, discipline of um, peer work which we have in Australia as well, it's just for them it's, you know, it's, it's something that is, has virtually replaced mental health professionals in certain sort of sectors mm-hmm. and they get amazing results as we do here too. I think it's an incredible, incredibly exciting field. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so there, it's often uh, there, there might need to be some changes that are a little bit about offering support in a slightly longer Sort of term. Also, there can be some legal differences. Mm. So, for example, you know, there's definitely uh, when we look at, uh, say, the the Youth Mental Health First Aid Program. You know, obviously in Australia, the legal age of drinking is 18, and in the states, it's 21. And it's certainly not to say that they don't have any underage drinking. Or we do as <laughs> they do as well as we do. But it tends to start just that little bit later. It's actually quite a good Mm-hmm. Uh, policy to have a legal drinking age of 21 and it also means that you've got sort of three years of brain development yeah uh, a little bit <laughs> more yeah. on your belt before that sort of starts so there can be differences because you know you're not if you're talking about underage drinking you're not necessarily talking about high school so much as you're talking about college or yeah yeah but for the most part no not big changes and they don't need to be big changes no. uh, the one exception i guess that there would be is we have um, a couple of countries like India mm-hmm. where things are that bit more different, you know, where there's um, incredible class inequalities and uh, not a whole lot of access to uh, mental health professionals of, of any real kind, uh, where a lot of the work needs to be um, somewhat adjusted. It's still about using the action plan, but... It might not be necessarily about seeking professional help. It's again, might be about providing a little bit more support yourself. Or, mm. and we're working at the moment a really exciting project, um, being led by our uh, colleagues at the University of Melbourne, which in the long term will be developing guidelines for lower and middle income countries. Right. So largely countries where, or or parts of countries in some cases where access to mental health professionals is difficult or impossible. Yeah. And so some of those skills actually need to be a little bit more about um, probably providing, you know, additional sorts of levels of support mm. as well as really battling some of the very serious stigmatising attitudes that we that there are in parts of the world where you yeah. know, mental illness is viewed as demon possession or, you know, <laughs> 
where you literally are looking at uh, showing people that their relative is not possessed and actually yeah. just needs some support and, and kindness to, to get through. So interesting, the work that, that, that you're doing there. That's oh. absolutely fascinating because yeah, so we have, in the time that you've been at Mental Health First Aid and the time that I've been involved in, in mental health services, there's been so much progress made, so mm. much progress. There's a long way to go, but if I go back to, if I think back to the like 1990 when I first, and I was only 17 and I'm not that old, well... Yeah, anyway. Um, and I think back to 1990 and the way things were, we really, I, I never imagined that we could come as far as we have, but I'm still discontent. <laughs> yes, yes, there's definitely, uh, there, there is a long way to go. Yeah. What do you think? It is really hard to sort of no, quite fathom what it was like. <laughs> yeah, I know, but you know, I can, you know, I do, I can think. Even though they were, they, I, they were some of the best years. I was working in in um, in the old hospitals and and what have you. Was some of the best because they were probably my formative years. You know, in, in, in becoming an adult myself and 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 working around just such fabulous people that influenced my life significantly and and mm. just significantly. I could rattle off the list of names of just brilliant people. Um, but yeah, never imagined that it would would come as, as far. And I never imagined I'd be in another country, still, you know, advocating <laughs> the same the same kind of thing. But what do you think is the biggest the biggest barrier currently in Australia for people that are struggling with their own mental health? What do you think is the biggest barrier? Oh. Biggest, you know, that there's a couple of things yeah. that come to mind, and probably the biggest one. Now, I'm going to say self stigma. Mm-hmm. You know, we are our, our stigmatizing attitudes towards others have improved mm-hmm. quite a lot. You know, I can say to Joe Blow, so tell me, you know, if your partner was depressed, if you were seeing this sort of thing, you know, what would you do? And, and he'll say, oh, you know, I'd, I'd be supportive. I'd I'd, uh, you know, get them to the doctor and find out what I needed to do and see if they needed to take some time off work. I'm like, okay, so, Joe, what if it was you? And it's, oh, no, 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 I, I can handle it. You know, so there's often this feeling that, no, it's completely fine that other people aren't doing well and I want to help them, but if it's me, I have to be able to handle it by myself. Yeah. Um, there is still, you know, all the stigmatising attitudes that have improved significantly over the last 15 years one that has remained obnoxiously sticky is the idea that mental illness, particularly depression and anxiety, occur because of a weakness of character. Yeah. Uh, and that is one that people are more likely to view about themselves rather than somebody else. Mm. So just that feeling that I should be able to think my way out of it. What an interesting answer. That's I, such I a true, that's such a true statement. It really is. But then I think beyond that, you know, there's a there's a lot of gatekeeping still. You know, I think that, you know, we don't have the resources we need in this in this sector, which means that we for all that we talk about, you know, the importance of early intervention, you can't get early intervention because you're not sick enough yet to access yeah. the sorts of services that, you know, could actually do that work. So people escalate. Mm-hmm. In fact, we basically teach people to escalate. Mm. You know, I think about some of my friends who are working in emergency departments and psychiatric hospitals around the, the psychiatric wards around the place, and people will say, you know, this, this girl came in this week and, you know, she'd injured pretty badly but we didn't have the beds so she got stitched up and sent home and now she's back with a suicide attempt. We've mm. basically taught mm. her that she has yeah. to escalate in order to get the help that she needs. And that is that is not okay. No. But unfortunately, without saying, okay, well, let's shuffle this along and make sure that we we're investing appropriately in early intervention, we can't take that money away from crisis services. No. So it just needs to be a much bigger pool of money. Yeah. We need to look at where in the health budget, you know, there are inefficiencies, mm. and we also need to just say, you know what, you know, whatever it costs is what it costs. You know, we actually need to say that, you know, and forget <laughs> the gross domestic profit. Mm. You know, we do need to be measuring people's health 
happiness as a measure of a successful society. Mm, no doubt. And, and, and a high-performing society that's going to have economic yes. growth off the back of that. And mental health services have always been the Cinderella service. I mean, it's always been oh, the, yeah. the, the one that's left behind. And um, I think maybe what it takes is for people to get angry about the, the, the suicides in our society that are preventable, that these are healthy people that are dying because early intervention services aren't there or people aren't deemed to be sick enough to access the very limited services. It's a postcode lottery in terms of, you know, the services that are going to be available for people. And if it was people that were diagnosed with conditions such as, you know, asthma or diabetes and, and, and that were dying unnecessarily, everybody would be up in arms. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you think that even, you know, at a, at a, perhaps a more closely related level. I remember when I first started doing sort of suicide education and mental health education because I was I um, was teaching a suicide intervention um, program back in 2003 as well. Uh, one of the things that, you know, pretty much every year it was either suicide or, the, or um, motor vehicle incidents that were the leading cause of death in young people under sort of 25. And that has not been the case for a really long time. It's been suicide by a long, yeah. long way for yeah. many, many years. And the thing is that we've invested huge amounts of money into preventing uh, the road toll. Yeah. There hasn't been anything like that same level of investment into something like suicide. And I think that there is that feeling of, well, if people want to do it, they're going to do it. It's like, no. It's no, unacceptable. No. That's not the way to think about it. We know that national campaigns work. I mean, you mentioned HIV earlier on and and the the campaigns in in the UK in the the 90s, late 80s, early 90s, it probably was, um, in terms of HIV awareness and um, and were were, were successful because Mm -hmm. the rates of HIV dropped significantly. And then we had all these amazing charities, the Terence Higgins Trust and all these amazing charities that kind of popped up to support um, that community and uh, and the issues there. And then you look at the um, anti-smoking campaigns that we have. You know, they work. They successful. They work. And like you never had a rate of smoking this low in Australia. And the rate of smoking amongst teenagers is tiny. Yeah. So why do we, why? I don't know. I know I'm asking you a question. There's no straight answer to. I'll end oh, up a political. It's side. a question that's been very much on my mind this week though, because I spent last week um, at the Suicide Prevention Australia yeah. conference here in Melbourne. Yeah. And, oh, I just wanted to hug every single person that was there. I just, I find one of the, the upsides maybe of being underfunded is that we have learned to stretch a dollar haven't we (laughs) particularly I adore hearing what people in rural and remote areas (laughs) have tiny tiny budgets the way they stretch those out but last week there was this real feeling of yeah it's time this is like the watershed moment we are not putting up with this anymore Um, we really need to 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 change things we need to change things now and the, the, the if we have to make the economic argument okay but the human cost is just, you know, there's so many people at that conference who have, who are in the sector because they've lost someone to suicide. Absolutely. Everybody's or, got a story. They, yes. they, they just need the chance to tell it. Oh, it was just, it was a really, really inspiring conference. Yeah. But there was this kind of really exciting simmer of righteous anger for a lot of people just going, get. Yeah, we are no longer the poor cousins. We need to be taken seriously. This is a lot of people dying every year. It's the leading cause of death for people under 44 in Australia. That is just terrible. But I am heartened by what you say that that you took away from the conference, you know, that people, because I think it needs to take a groundswell of anger for people to say, we are not tolerating this anymore. Not just no more. We're not losing our loved ones in this way anymore, or we're not, um, you know, we're not going to suffer ourselves anymore. This has to be addressed. Yes. yes, absolutely. And that was wonderful. And hearing some really novel methods, you know, people using more data-driven approaches that are, you know, that have a, you know, a lot of promise in the long term. 
um, people who have stopped using suicide as their outcome and started looking at suicide attempts and presentations. Right. Which, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. a lot easier to measure because the numbers are larger. Yeah. But it's also, you know, we know that people who have survived suicide attempts are often severely disabled, have terrible outcomes in the long term. And we need to be capturing that as well. Every person whose life is better because they haven't taken that step, you know, whether it's because they're alive or because they, they do not have some sort of long-term disability from, from that incident, all of those are, are incredibly important. And it really was a wonderful feeling. People, I swear, are just particularly I was thinking on the, the, the Wednesday afternoon, just the way people were walking tall and right. really engaging with each other and just there was a real feeling of positivity. Yeah, I lo- that really does hearten me because another issue that doesn't get talked about often too in terms of losing loved ones to suicide is the intergenerational trauma. It carries oh. through generations. And it do- in my personal opinion, it doesn't, it, it, that's not talked about enough. You know, it's not just the, um, the immense distress and trauma that you, you carry as, for example, a child whose parents die by suicide, but you get married and have your own children, you will parent differently you will parent differently. It will impact on your uh, ability to allow, you know, the, 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 free, the freedom of parenting um, when you don't have um, uh, the trauma of losing a parent to suicide, for example. And there's other examples of intergenerational trauma that, you know, that we need to be taken into account too. But this, the, the ripple effect is just so great um, that, you know, I, I'm glad people are getting angry and I'm glad that they're walking tall and I'm glad that they're saying we're not putting up with this anymore. I'd love to stand at the forefront with everyone waving the bloody banner. <laughs> I don't know, Tina, I think you're doing that. <laughs> uh, that's, that's fabulous. Um, just one more quick question about um, the, uh, the conference. Um, how was Julia Gillard's speech? Was that inspiring? Uh, do you know, I missed it. But oh, no. Everyone else who heard it said that it was really something yeah. special. Fabulous. Yeah. No, I, I, she, uh, I, I'm quite a fan actually of, um, of Julia Gillard yeah, and, uh, and I love the work that she's been doing. And I, I really liked that, um, I understand in her speech that she talked about, we've got to stop the squabbling. Let's stop yep. the squabbling between advocates in terms of who gets what money. You know, we are all on the same side and I love that message. Absolutely. I mean, to me, it, there's definitely a bit of uh, instead of saying, oh, well, they shouldn't have got that, we should have got that, we, we need to be saying, hang on, no, we should both have got it because there should be more. Yeah, yeah, I agree. You know, when you look at the, the, bird, the disability burden from mental illnesses, particularly depression, anxiety, it's enormous. And they're not huge killers. I mean, definitely, you know, suicide is, you know, one of the, the most tragic outcomes, but compared to our big killers, which are cancer and cardiovascular disease, yeah. but the disability and the, the, the cost, the human cost of that, just in terms of people being able to live their lives, connect yeah. with their families is, is huge. But the, the amount of money that is invested is so disproportionately small. It's yeah. really hard to fathom. And it doesn't matter who's in government. No, no, it doesn't. But they also, they all need to be able to say, you know what, like whoever, whichever party we're on, this is actually a long-term Australian problem and we need to have a vision for the next 20 years yeah, Yeah. or 10 years and we're re-evaluating things. No, and we agree that this isn't going to get cut just because there's a change in government. Do you have, um, I'm going right left field here Claire I'm asking you this question but uh, it's just popped in my mind I don't know the answer to this is there a plan is there a mental health plan for um for Australia Uh, and I don't mean is it are there are there only state plans that are funded um is state funded or is there an an is there a national plan that sits across all the states yeah, it's the National Mental Health Strategy, which um, it comes out every five years. Right. Which I, th- I think has actually been on the five-year, which would mean that the next one's due out 
uh, next week. But I'd be more than happy to send you a link to that if you're interested. In yeah, I it. am interested in that. And, and, and it's, it's fully it's more about direction rather than, no, no, the okay. strategy it's is a, not so much about the funding, it's about the what structure and what we need to be doing. And oh. yeah. Mm, okay, interesting. All right, so look. We'd, uh, we'd love to have you back for another podcast because I'd love to come. Back. I've got so many more questions um, and I'd really <laughs> love it if you don't mind, if we could focus on youth mental health first aid the next time we chat. Oh, I'd love that. Yes. Uh, we don't deliver youth mental health first aid here at the Career Development Centre, um, but we are happy to engage with any instructors that, that are close to us. If anybody um, from our ne- the next podcast that we record is interested in, in doing youth mental health first aid, but I know that a lot of our listeners will benefit from any conversation that we have just around that, you know, whole, um, you know, what's going on for our youth right now and, uh, and that kind of thing. That'd be great. Okay, so we'll set aside three or four hours to. <laughs> I think we probably get excited. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've, I have, I've looked at the clock, and I think, yeah, no, I, yeah, I think I need to, to kind of wrap it up. Um, yeah, and then absolutely. I'm going to be a little bit more precise with some of the things that I want to know. And that if anyone wants to email <laughs> us or contact us at the Career Development Centre for any specific questions for Claire, um, we'll, we'll see if we can't get those in as well on the next podcast. Absolutely. Awesome. That's great. So much for your time. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Everybody hold this space because there's we're coming back for part two and we'll let you know when that's going to be. Awesome. I Thank look you forward so much, to it. Claire. Thank you, Tina. If you enjoyed this podcast and you would like us to appear in your feed, please hit the subscribe button and you're also welcome to leave us a review. For more information, visit careerdevelopmentcenter.com.au.